Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. All right, welcome everybody. Let's uh, say the prayer we're accustomed to. We pray. The eyes of all look to thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, John, I was checking, we were checking the number of downloads that we have, and we have 1,300, which is just crazy to me. We're yeah. Not, we're not promoting this at all. Nope. All word of mouth, and I've never counted that high, that's yeah. for sure. And I've often wondered, I mean, podcasts would seem to be just a lot of noise out there, and you know, that's, I've always been kind of skeptical about the whole phenomenon, but then you actually have people <laughs> spending time listening, yeah. which I really appreciate. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And it's interesting for me because I, I actually don't listen to podcasts almost ever. Yeah. I, every once in a while, someone will have an episode they recommend and I'll, I'll check it out. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the appeal is a lot of people have some found time where they're mm-hmm. traveling or driving sure, yeah. or doing dishes yeah. or, or something they can... Right. They can use that time to learn, essentially, I right. think is what it would, would come down to, or be engaged in something that's beyond just what they're currently doing. Right. So, I mean, I've probably said it before, but I, hearing a top scholar one time saying that he thought his greatest influence was blogs and podcasting after all the stuff he'd done and the books he'd written and classes yeah. he'd taught, I just, I don't quite understand that still. But uh, I feel really honored by the fact that anybody would actually tune in. Yeah. You know? Likewise. Yeah. I think that's a great segue also to our topic for today, which we're leading off with, you have, what is it, honor and shame? Yeah, we're going to talk about culture in this episode, and I've been reflecting on culture. Uh, My wife and I had a beautiful trip to Thailand um, a few weeks back. I'm jealous. We came back, yeah. It's this happy, happy country. It's incredibly beautiful and inexpensive and highly recommend Thailand to all you who are looking for a destination. So the the topic is culture, and that'll be kind of our springboard. And uh, to start with a devotional thought, to see, to explain where I'm coming from, um, almost sort of randomly chosen, but I'm going to read the closing verses of Psalm 23, and then I'll explain why. So very familiar You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this is the word of God. So the idea of honor, shame, it kind of starts like this. The analogy is if you were to buy a certain brand of car, let's say a Lincoln Town Car, I think is the example I've heard, you buy a Lincoln Town Car, and then when you go out driving around, no matter where you go, you start to see Lincoln Town Cars every place you go. And I think you mentioned, there's a name for that? Yeah, I think it's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, where you learn about something or are like made aware of something, and then almost immediately you start seeing it everywhere. Oh, you can't not. That's it, great. It, yeah. That's good random information. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The... So, so the idea here is that honor and shame are these motifs that are very, very prominent in Scripture. And once you become aware of them, you start to see them. So here's a, just, a again, a simple, almost random example. But Psalm 23 has that description of being seated at the king's table. So the metaphor of the sheep and shepherd seems to kind of switch in the middle of the psalm. And now we're at the king's table. And he's anointing our head with oil, filling our cup to overflowing right there in the presence of our enemies. And so it is a picture of being profoundly honored beyond our deserving. And so you start to see, you know, in the garden, of course, there's the disgrace of Adam and Eve and the nakedness that they become painfully aware of what they become as sinners. And God covers their nakedness. You have the ironic blessing, the Lord making his face shine upon us. It's, it's the bestowing of honor and it's sort of the sharing of his honor as as those that belong to him by faith in Jesus. And, you know, once you were not a people, Peter said, now you are the people of God. And, you, you know, it's it's being brought into a community. 
and lift it up and elevate it. And it's just a really interesting thing. When I, when I was in Thailand, you know, uh, our Asian missionaries talk about this because they've experienced it deeply that maybe the books say two thirds of the world um, is full of cultures that are really based around honor and shame and can be difficult for a Western person to really understand um, how people experience that. You know, so saying, for example, to someone in witnessing in Asia, you might tell them that they're sinners, but God has forgiven them for Jesus' sake. And you get kind of a blank stare from a person. That's what the missionaries have said. They're not really understanding what you're saying. They don't um, relate to it very well. Yeah, something they, about yeah. an external standard that a person has violated. This is God's will. I've violated. I've fallen short. And therefore, forgiveness becomes this life-altering truth that it doesn't seem to resonate the same way. But if you ask that same person, have you ever shamed your family? Then it, it's a whole different family. So it's a whole, whole different conversation. So it's something to do with just how the various ways people experience their fallenness and the various ways cultures of the world have tried to deal with that. And some do it, you know, in their community, some do it with ritual. And so the idea is not that we would ever step back or no longer emphasize the issue of sin and forgiveness. You know, guilt and forgiveness is just so prominent in Scripture. It's the atonement that uh, Christ won for us by his death on the cross. We're never going to not emphasize that the way we always have. It's, it's a thought that just that are there yet further dimensions that... Uh, There's more to the picture that we can kind of look to yeah. or ex and explore. That's the idea. You know, it's, we're not in an honor-shame culture necessarily, yet I think people in our culture do experience profound, profound shame. And I've, I've often thought, just, have you ever been to high school? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so you, you think about a young person who feels profound disgrace and shame, not just for what they've done, that's the sin forgiveness motif, but also for what they are. They, they, they are worthless, and they feel that deeply, and you wonder if these further dimensions of the gospel that are very, very prominent in Scripture, once you see them, could, um, I don't know, resonate that much more deeply, touch those untouched places in the person who lives with disgrace. Yeah, I was trying to think about that, like kind of in my own life, how I've experienced uh, forgiveness and guilt as, exposed, as opposed to more shame or honor and I think it has mostly been the the focus certainly that I recall has been you've missed the target you're mm -hmm. a sinner mm -hmm. and then you're forgiven but there hasn't maybe there like there's a deeper component that's been kind of not left out but hasn't been brought forth or there hasn't been as much attention given right. to that I mean it, it's, I've fallen into, you know, being not lulled to sleep, but the like confession and absolution happens every Sunday. Right. And it can, it doesn't resonate as strongly as it could for yeah, sure. It, it doesn't, right. it, it doesn't mean as much. And maybe that in my own way, that's my own like blank stare into like, there's something more at play here that can, that can be brought into the picture. Right. I, I wonder, too, how many people, you know, may have that experience. Um, and I, I think even if we have shame in our culture, we surely do, but I, th I think we experience it differently. You know, I feel great honor by my children, all four of them, with my new two sons-in-law. I, I feel really, truly honored by the people that they are. So I, I do experience kind of a shared honor from my group in some way. I don't think it's the same, though. You know, when there was the the New York City Marathon bombing and how a man from that culture of those who carried out that atrocity just said, we are all shamed. You know, our whole, our whole ethnicity is now shamed. That's not something I f yeah. naturally feel. You yeah. Know? Like if, if that would happen for someone saying that about our culture, I, it wouldn't really I mean, you ring feel, true sure, a little bit. It, like, like you have a little bit where it's like not, we, were on we, the plane we feel to terrible. Yeah. And there was some, some, 
loud Americans, and you felt kind of embarrassed. That I you're see representing poorly, but it's it's not quite. It doesn't existential. It doesn't maybe. pierce as, as maybe, deeply. Maybe not. Maybe. It's just it's just a fascinating thing. Um, so what we were you know we were talked earlier about you and I privately the the image of the judge who acquits us in the courtroom. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, someone steps up to take our punishment, that is Christ our brother, and the judge says, not guilty for Jesus' sake, and we walk away free. And I think we've all kind of realized this, that that's one priceless picture of salvation. But there's but more to that it's picture. It's the yeah. relational piece with the judge. I mean, the judge, I suppose, kind of loves you in that moment, but... Not you know, but I guess what completes the picture is the prodigal son. Yeah. What completes the picture is the father running to his son. The son has disgraced his family outright and smells like pigs, you know, when he comes back from a far country and just an ultimate total disgrace and shame. And the father running to the son and throwing the robe around his shoulders and putting the ring on his finger and throwing a feast. All of that is is in this other realm of honor. Um, restoring someone to his family and his community. And and I've just, again, there's nothing new here. It just really hits me, though, that, that maybe not, there's I'm not room just forgiven, to, but I'm, I'm covered as well. There's you know? room to bring more of that into the the way that we experience forgiveness and, yeah, I think and so. guilt, for sure. What I, what I have said in a couple places, um, it's, it's like living... So the gospel is like a room that you stand in and you've enjoyed the gospel for 57 years in my case, explored that room for 57 years. And then my, my little metaphor was just like one of the walls turns out to be an accordion door and you push it back and just, there's, there's still more, there's yeah. still more that a person hadn't fully quite seen. And it, it's become really rich in my own, you know, reading of scripture and thinking, you know, not just forgiven, but covered in my disgrace. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. I think, so I was trying to um, think about how I've experienced guilt in my life or shame or either. And I'm trying to kind of put into words like the difference between the two. Because it, it the lines can blur, I think. Definitely. So Definitely. You, you kind of experience one and the other, but maybe in different um, relative amounts, so to speak. But I was trying to put words to like how I would differentiate between the two. And I think maybe guilt is um, uh, like I've, I've missed the mark. I'm off target. I did something wrong. And shame would be I am wrong. Mm -hmm. It's a more like strikes more to your core, more, um, potentially. Yeah. yeah potentially. Maybe, maybe that's a, I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to just flesh out some I think that's right. terminology, like some, like not definitions, but like how to talk about them or to like what to focus on. If right. we're trying to introduce more, <laughs> introduce more shame into our, our Christian lives, then <laughs> what, what can, like, how can we talk about that or facilitate that in a way that's meaningful? But that, and of course we also would bring in, like this is what it means to be honored by God. Like you are a child of God and to bring the full meaning of that into the picture as well, instead of you don't have to go to jail anymore, you know? Right. So right. I think that's right. I, what I do and what I am as sinner, both are profoundly true. Yeah. And so we, we would not want to pull apart the vertical dimension, us and God and his will that we violated and still do from the horizontal, which is the, the daily experience of shame and, whatever, um, the much more relational piece. We wouldn't really pull those apart. Both are just true. And it seems that cultures around the world dealing with fallenness have found their own mechanisms and ways to to uh, sort of survive, I guess, in, in yeah. a way. So um, I also maybe should put a word in here that there are people out there who write about honor and shame that are going to maybe take us places you and I would not want to go. They... They, uh, some are very postmodern, you know, where it just becomes really more important, this cultural story than what is objectively true in the scriptures. There's a lot going on there. There's something called the, uh, what's it called? The new thinking on Paul, which is trying to say that justification, we've had it wrong for centuries and that justification really is 
being restored to a community. And so my, my own point here is just that not everybody who writes about this is safe to listen to, you know, not every, by any means, but what I think the safe ground is just open the Bible yeah. and you'll see we're not making this up that yeah. this is a more And this podcast thing. as well. Or <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Safe track. <laughs> yeah. So but yeah, it's good to take those things with like a grain of salt maybe, or, right. or if you want to approach those, I don't know, I'm not familiar with that literature, but, mm-hmm. um, there are maybe some things out there that might be wise to be, uh, cautious with in sure. terms of like, accepting at face value. Right. You're always asking where, where is it given? Yeah. For for everything, we're kind of, if scripture is not your like reference, then, then maybe it's a, yeah. That's why I keep saying there's really nothing new here. Yeah. There's not a single thing that's new here in what we're saying. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, sort of becoming more aware of a a really prominent thing. Taking a closer look at the accordion wall and Mm -hmm. starting to push a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. So and then so that kind of leads us right into uh, a more broad uh, discussion of of culture because shame, guilt, forgiveness, honor those things are certainly aspects of uh, cultural um, ways of being for for different places around the world. I think you said maybe two thirds of the world is has yeah. has a sort of understanding of well you can see. In the literature, some really complex, the complexities there where there's no culture that's all one way or the other. There's a third dimension which has to do with um, basically power and evil. So okay. I'm thinking like some African um, yeah. ethnicity where it's evil spirits that we have to navigate in certain ways. You know, So there's a third dimension as well. But most of the world would be predominant in honor, shame, according to the literature. But okay. it doesn't exclude the others. Yeah, it's just a a relative. It's a theme. Yeah, yeah it's a relative perception for mm-hmm. the. Hmm. Well, I've got here a pretty textbook different dictionary definition of culture that might uh, springboard us into the whole like a more all encompassing view than just this these sure. couple dynamics. And so the this um very dry definition is uh, of culture the customs arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing to write home about there. Mm-hmm. I think the the definition that we kind of talked about earlier that you really like, um, what was his name that you, Clifford? Yeah, Clifford Kurtz, um, anthropologist. We've talked about him, I think. The really premier ethnographer, so penetrated culture, Write it down. Mm-hmm. Write it down. Um, try to arrive at a thick description of culture, which you know means a description of culture that um, makes sense from within that culture, sort of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we, we did talk about this. The the semiotic web is a view of culture that says a culture is really that whole web of meanings, just the language, the nonverbals, the artifacts, the symbols, the stories, that whole incredibly complex web of meaning that uh, takes a lot of time to penetrate as an outsider. You can be in a place for a week or two and start to have uncertainty reduced, start to kind of know how to, you know, greet and things like that and deal with some of the initial shock, but that these other perceptions just take way longer to start to see the world in the same way. Yeah. So I like that. We kind of maybe related is the kind of picture of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Or like when you first show up in a, a culture that's unfamiliar to you, you kind of, you see those nonverbals, you see the the different ways that people are interacting, maybe even the language that's spoken or how it's spoken. Usually the language is different in the ones that I'm thinking of at least. But then as you start to, um, I don't know if acclimate is the right word, but sure. you start, sort of start to uh, penetrate into the, or understand maybe to see, to be aware of, of that culture, you see the things underneath which might be like more of the kind of like the shame idea, yeah, like what, like the, understanding the the deeper meanings behind all of these things definitely. that are how you like, relate to yourself, how you relate to yeah. your time, authority. Yeah, is a whole deeper layer of perceptions. I, so before, yeah, how what is a different perception of time like? Well, Do you have any? Because I'm just curious I mean, right now. Famous, I just like heard that right one, now. So John and I 
to our listeners, we don't listen to our podcast, and so we're forever wondering, have we already said something before? <laughs> um, so the theory of linguistic relativity, have we talked about I, that? Yeah, we have. Okay, so uh, that'd be the, the famous example is Ho- okay. Hopi Indians don't have the same kinds of words for tense and time. And so the I thought see. is, are they experiencing time more cyclically? more in the seasons than thinking. Yeah, more like a rhythm. But a long or, distant past or a distant future to which we're heading, do they think, do they really experience it differently? Yeah. That's the kind of wide open question. I think, so. did we talk about that? Did we ever talk about, we probably talked about Arrival, the movie, one of my favorites. Yeah. I think, I think is I think very related. Went down like, that path. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Dangerous waters, <laughs> but also fun. So for something fresh, yeah. maybe, I've often thought with just the, the, the scholars I've been, acquainted with that deal with culture. And by the way, we'll talk about him, I think, later on in the episode. Uh, what's his name? Gert uh, Hofstede. We should dedicate this episode to Gert Hofstede. He died in February, you told me. Yeah. Um, across that. I'm looking it up, I think, February 12th this yeah. year, wow. in 2020, when we were recording this in giant, early March. Yeah, Giant, influential scholar on culture. So we'll come back to him. Um, so what I was saying was, as you get exposed to different scholars... It kind of occurred to me that they they can tend to fall into two different sides. And then the question is, are people of different cultures, are we the same or are we different? And scholars really do come down in, in some surprising ways there. And so I, I framed the question this way, which is better? Which is more interesting? Which is more beautiful of a concept? Should I encounter a new culture, like go to Thailand, and should I be saying to myself... Now, just don't forget, Mark, people are the same. Underneath that mask or out behind the stage of culture, behind the mask, people are just the same as you. Would that be a good thing? Or would it be a better thing to enter a new culture saying, okay, Mark, just remember, these people are different, you know, and, and to prepare yourself for just how bewildering, how disorienting um, culture can be, that the shock is very real. So... I like that kind of a dichotomy or that dialectical tension. So you could say, and I'll ask you this, John, I'll just put you on the spot. Oh, I love it. Yeah. What's the problem with only saying to myself, people are the same? What's the problem with holding on to that notion when I go to Thailand or someplace? So uh, it might be irreverent or disrespectful towards the the differences that do exist that um, like if someone, if you're going into it, like, Oh, deep down, we're all the same people, like a very globalistic type of mindset, then you might be, you might be blinding yourself to uh, some of the ways, some of the interactions that you have, like you might, you might be missing some of the picture where you're like, I'm trying to think of like maybe an example of that, but well, maybe like someone's, the, yeah, maybe someone's looking at you or not looking you in the eye and you're looking directly at them because deep down we're all the same, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's it's, right. it's kind of maybe, maybe even a touch of hubris to like kind of make that assumption that, Oh, deep down we're all the same is maybe could blend in with like deep down you're just like me and kind of like you're trying to, pull them into your understanding of the world when they might actually have a whole different way of perception where them looking in the eye might be disrespectful or so uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be else. prepared yeah. to, to even think about that and and I think the the real common problem then becomes misattribution which is if I think we're all the same then I'm going to put the wrong meaning on things I'm going to think something is rude when it's not rude I'm going to think something is you just don't care because you're not displaying feeling the way I display feeling. And so, yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm not prepared for different. I'm not prepared to think about honor and shame. I'm not prepare, prepared to think about how a person experiences their sin or the grace of God. And so, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, uh, I mean, if we want to take the, would it be the converse of that or the other well, side well, of that first, coin? One more point, maybe? Yeah, for sure. Um, when I, I often do this for my students, so I'll say, behind the mask of culture, we're the same. We're behind the, in the backstage, whatever, mm-hmm. we're, we're performing culture. A student should raise their hand and say, Professor Paulson, culture is not a mask. It's, it's not a mask. It's not, 
it goes much deeper than that. You know, if a person had no culture, they would be, I don't know, in a fetal position, you know, not communicating at all because, you know, there's no backstage where people are just kind of lounging around smoking cigarettes yeah, in culture. It's not a masquerade. Of, no, it isn't. Of, it isn't. It's not just a, a show, a parade. It goes of, much, much deeper yeah. in terms of, you know, the seeds of language and so on. We might only see a mask, but there's what's underneath is also just as important. Right. Yeah. So we're saying culture is more significant than that. And to say, ah, we're all the same, therefore I can dismiss yeah. the the rest of the iceberg. Yeah. You know, going down from however many yeah. feet, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think of the right measurement. Um, so, so to the converse. So, okay. So if I said to myself, no, 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 remember that people are different. And if I clung to that view, they're not the same as me. What's the problem there? Put you on the spot again. Uh, there are no problems with that at all. I'm really? just kidding. <laughs> so, um, hmm. So, Initially, then you might be, you're, you're kind of tuning yourself to look for the differences between um, you and whatever culture you're kind of interfacing with. And uh, that might be a, kind of a default for people is like you yeah. become attuned to the differences unless, I mean, unless you're really gearing up and trying to like, everyone's this, like, we're all the same. We're all like one, like one big nation, one mm -hmm. giant um, human race type uh, mindset, I think the default for people might be something closer to uh, being attuned to the differences. Like, why isn't this person looking me in the eye? That's something mm -hmm. different. And you kind of, you can kind of explore those. But what's the danger in that? I think if you hold on to only looking at the differences, um, I think you, you might miss you might not be able. You you might not allow yourself to uh, uh, understand maybe the reasons behind mm -hmm. that, or like the story behind why I keep going back to eye contact because it's just the one that that comes up to me as like a nonverbal that you could recognize as a. I mean, we'll talk about high context and low yeah. context cultures later, but I, it also. Hmm. C.S. Lewis it, it, has a thing. Yeah. Right? Throw this in there. Yeah. Uh, Always for, yeah, for somewhere, Clive. Yeah. It's Rant and Clive. Yeah. <laughs> somewhere randomly, I came across this notion that he said, if you're going to go to China, that was his example, and you're going to be so shocked, so bewildered by just how strangely people are living compared to your way, which is the right way, you know, this ethnocentricity. He said, but you'd be better off not going than to lose that sense of a shared humanity. And so that would be the thing. If we we just clung to difference and, and we just lost, well, for example, lost a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of what people are, and you lost sight of that people are yeah. still sinners and honor, shame, guilt, forgiveness, whatever it might be. So that would be the difference then, is, right. is your, your isolationist and you're, you're actually viewing as, it's like an other, that might be a, like a Martin Buber type, Maybe thing yeah, where you're yeah. you them, those the, people you like you're just grouping as uh, you're excluding you're, sure, not, you're not you're not open to maybe seeing them as as uh, human well as human yeah, yeah. as fallen as people who yeah. need redemption through a savior people who have organs of soul to contain the image of God in their intellect emotion and will I mean all mm -hmm. that you could lose if you just thought. They're different, and that's that's Clifford Gertz, by the way. He was way on the side. He he would be frustrated by his anthropology students who would want to go to far off places to f you know to f find themselves and find this common humanity for he the would, novelty of it. Yeah, uh, he would just yeah. say he would scream at them. Basically, people are different. Go learn that. People are different. Go learn that. And his example, an interesting example, he talks about the the cathedrals of Europe, and he says how they're the same just isn't interesting. To him, it wasn't. How the cathedrals of Europe are the same just isn't interesting. They maybe all have sacristies or all have narthexes or whatever, but but it's how they're different that matters. And and uh, the word he uses, I like the word, is particularity. How the uniqueness and particularity of a of a place and a group and a culture that's what matters. And so he's way on that side. And I think we would agree it's a, kind of a beautiful dialectical tension 
Both are beautiful. Both are important. Yeah. Both are interesting. The fact that we're the same and that we're different. That's kind of where I kind of yeah, end up looking at attention. Respect both of those. And depending on the situation, and that's what I think is interesting is kind of like, so I want to take this knowledge into my experiences with culture, whether it's, you know, me going to some place for the first time or me, you know, witnessing my faith to someone who has like is from mm-hmm. a different culture, which one of these, uh, if you want to turn it to a strategy or maybe just a, maybe a lens to what, to view what is important to this situation, what, what to look for, like at what point will, as you said, you were like, if I'm in Thailand, like, remember deep down, we're all the same. Like, or remember there are some pretty stark differences here and we're not all the same. And there are things that are different to be perceived. Which one of those is identifying which one of those is more pertinent to your situation? Well, if, if any of them. So that's sort of why I hoped it was worth repeating the semiotic web because it's kind of a middle position, which doesn't minimize culture. It says it's very, very significant what it what it means, what it takes, what kind of talk and observation it requires to to uh, poke your head in, as I say, and understand uh, another view of time or whatever. Um, but it, it doesn't either give in to just a total um, pessimism about that. It's, yeah. it's it's work. It's not nothing, but. N- nor do we say there's a Chinese brain and an African brain and these two can never meet each other. They're just too fundamentally different in their hardwiring. We, we would never give in to the pessimism to that degree. So yeah. we're holding both intention, I think, is where we arrive. I love that. Um, I'm a big fan of like kind of bringing dichotomies together and, mm-hmm. and seeing like what, how do they play out. Like are, is there really are – are these two things inseparable or do you like – you have to have a little, mm-hmm. a little bit of both. I think to, for sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's fun to play around with that. So we are dedicating this episode to Gert Hofstede. Um, yes. I said before, his influence is massive. Do you want to take us up? Yeah. So all about? Um, he, his main idea is that he has a, a theory um, aptly named Hofstede's cultural dimensions theory which initially had four different um, metrics, maybe mm-hmm. axes, you could say, if you're going to try to graph them out. And it's just like like introvert, extrovert, that kind of thing right. for culture. And so initially, um, one of the, the four initial ones were uh, power distance. Like how do you relate to the people in power? Um, individualism versus a more collectivist approach to culture. Um, uncertainty avoidance, how much are you willing to go into places where you're not familiar or leave things hanging um, without resolution, uh, masculinity versus femininity. And those are the those were the first four that he started. And then through the years, he added two more dimensions, which um, I think one was in the 90s and then one was just a few years ago, I believe they added it. But I'm I mean, I'm just getting caught up to speed on these last two for sure today. So the the fifth one that they added was long-term orientation versus short-term orientation, which is um, maybe I'm thinking of the marshmallow test, like how much are you able to put off um, reward for the sake of like a reward in the future mm-hmm. versus how much do I need something right now? And then possibly related, but listed here as a separate axis would be indulgence versus restraint. So how much are you like maybe living in the moment mm-hmm. versus um, living or, or holding yourself back and being um, kind of filtering your actions through, uh, I suppose a filter <laughs> and, and, and sort of holding yourself back in certain situations. Mm-hmm or being more cautious about taking action right. towards things. So those are the the six different axes that he came up with throughout the years. Yeah, I feel like, you know, this is sort of what's below the waterline in the iceberg too. Yeah. And it, it's just really useful to see something more than just, boy, they have different nonverbals here, boy, they greet each other differently in this place. 
Um, any of those are especially interesting to you, John? I feel like I've experienced them all when I've traveled. Well, I, I still need to stamp my passport, so I do not have as much um, real-life experience okay. with these. I mean, but you see these yeah, I, here, I'm too, to and, and... Pick a favorite. So, I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, I think power distance is interesting. Mm -hmm. All of them are interesting, but power difference is very interesting mm -hmm. to me, is how you position yourself to authority. Right. And... Um, like how that guides how you're interacting with those around you. Sure, and sure. that's what maybe eye contact is like a, one of the surface level things that's related to that is like, if would you look at someone in authority? Some places it might be like, look me in the eye. Like that's what's expected where other places it might be the total opposite mm -hmm. where it's like, you do not look me in the eye. Right. You, you, that's not something that you do. Right. So, yeah, I've seen that one as a complication in a in a mission setting where the workers were so keenly aware of their positions, whether you were called an evangelist or a pastor, whatever you were called, just keenly, keenly aware of those differences in a way that made, well, to a Western view, a way that just seemed like sort of counterproductive at some level. But so it's kind of like how overawed you would be if Donald Trump walked in the room, let's say, just how overawed you would be by someone with a with a very different authority position. Um, so, yeah, I lost my train of thought there. So Yeah, well, I mean, I was just imagining it would be kind of, I think the, the more of the surprise would be like, why are you here? <laughs> Rather than like, what is our power difference? But mm -hmm. um, maybe that's just a testament to the relatively low power distance that I mean, I'm looking yeah. at a, a scale right now. It's kind of comparing Brazil, China, Germany, and the United States across these six different um, categories. And Germany and the United States are both relatively low in power mm -hmm. distance, whereas uh, China is at the highest, almost the highest of any single category on any mm -hmm. on the scale. Is that other than the United States and individualism, which we can maybe talk about right after this, but China's, the power difference is very high. And I would extrapolate that maybe to other cultures from mm -hmm. my perception as well. Not that I've measured them, but. But then you can apply all of this to subcultures in our own context mm -hmm. here, right? So I'm calling professors by their first name when I go to Mankato State, and that's not how we roll at Martin Luther College. Yeah. We don't go professors by their first name. And so it's it's a subculture treating or experiencing authority differently than the surrounding culture. And that's true of all of these. All of the constructs can be that way, where we might think one way about um, our Minnesota nice culture here, that it's pretty pretty high context. We don't, yeah. we don't, we think we're low context that we just say what we mean, but we really are not very low context. No. We, there is a dance <laughs> the and an indirectness. Classic passive aggression. Yeah, that, of, would, that like would count as well. Those waters to navigate. Mm hmm. Hmm. Now I'm just thinking, Minnesota Nice is such an interesting, we, we might even be, we might have been able to get a whole episode out of that if we maybe. wanted to. Yeah, maybe. think. See, so I thought yeah. we were, I thought we were low context as Americans. And then, then I spent a month in Antigua and I thought, oh, that's what low context means because people are just telling you what they think. I mean, just yeah. really in a way that at first kind of takes your breath away because it's, you can at first perceive it as kind of bluntness, but then you start to find it kind of refreshing, you know? So when I was in Antigua, um, back home here in the States, my wife was, invited to a party she didn't want to go. And so she had this whole dilemma. What should I do with a party? I'm not, I don't want to go. And I, so I, you know, what should I say? How do I yeah, like how so do you, I raised this question yeah, with a bunch of people in Antigua in the class I was teaching. And they were just like, I don't want to go. And so I don't want to go. And, and uh, my wife was like, can we move there, please? You know, so there's something difficult but something also sort of refreshing that you don't find yourself yeah. guessing. I think sometimes I kind of challenge myself to, to kind of be on the other side of that coin in certain situations. If like, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't always want to play this sort of coy strategic communication. That's mm -hmm. all like this high context game 
maybe passive aggression is involved or I don't whatever's at play. Sometimes it's just refreshing to be direct, straight, and to the point. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like for work for me, it's like there's no. It it just takes too much time, yeah. <laughs> too much time to to kind of imply things instead of just saying like, look. Uh, this is what's up. So I think, you know, all of these cultural constructs can be sort of have their difficulties to them. You know, like if you're individualistic and you really want to be special, you just want to be special and different in somebody. Well, we need a lot of validation in when we're coming from that place. We just need a lot of people telling us that we're special. And I think individual or the collectivistic thing kind of looks beautiful in a certain way that we really care more about the whatever the group has shared. Yeah. And we really care more about the harmony of, the, of those people. That's kind of beautiful in a way, but it's also can be experienced very oppressively. The group has an awful lot of power um, to, to shape an individual's choices in life. And that can be hard to live with too. So it's, so culture isn't sacrosanct. We get to critique, we get to critique a given culture the problem there, of course, is that we we may see the blind spots of a given culture, and they're going to see our blind spots. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being in Africa, and and it was boy, if we had what you had, we'd be sharing it. You know, if we had the wealth you had, we'd be sharing it. So we're kind of both looking across the curtain of culture through it, and yeah, seeing yeah, different critique things. Critique is critique is interesting. I think. For me, even just the analysis is interesting where looking at like what is the predominant culture that I'm around and then and then maybe shaping messages or the way that you are interfacing with that culture, your own culture even, mm-hmm. um, can be more pointed or uh, timely. Right. right. I, I think it's a nice lens to look at certain situations like what is it like to come into the church? What's it like to come into the wells? You're, you're leaving one kind of culture and entering one that is probably much higher context in terms of there's just things you're supposed to know. We're not going to tell you how to worship. Yeah. There's just, you're just supposed to know certain things. and So just a way to think about how difficult that really can be for people. Yeah, I, I, I've thought about that before. Like what what kind of like if I say invite someone to church, what am I actually inviting them to? What kind of experience am I inviting them to? And what kind of culture are they walking into where, um, sometimes for me, it's like a self critique is like, what do I, what do I want them to be able to walk Mm -hmm. into and experience versus what would the reality be Mm -hmm. if they were there? And that, that kind of maybe sheds light on areas that, you know, I can improve or the church can improve. Right. It's like, am I, would I be comfortable taking anyone to church? Am I that comfortable with the, you know, my faith and my church family that I'm willing to like, you know, anyone that any, any Joe just come, come in, you know, and, or, or am I more, am I blind to the fact that I'm not comfortable with that? And that's maybe preventing me from being able to, to talk to people about it or even have the conversation in the first place. So yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. yeah, You know, I do feel a certain concern as we talk about this, that you can see how setting culture can lead you down this path of multiculturalism. And Mm -hmm. it it very much smacks of what's sort of postmodern and you know, finally there's your story, my story, and whatever, you know, as if there's no position from which to critique um, culture. So I, I think what saves us from that, just one element, is that the Bible, the scriptures do set up their own culture. The scriptures set up a certain culture, for example, that to be, to belong to Christ and to be part of the church is to, is to have an equality of status among all of us, from the synod president down to the newly baptized baby, there's yeah. an equality of status, and and let's conform to what that sets up between us, and not just sort of leave this all ill-defined and you know. Yeah. Well, going back to the prodigal son, like that's a great that that communicates culture as well. 
mm-hmm. in in terms of what is it like for shame and honor and guilt and forgiveness as well as mm-hmm. all kind of wrapped up right. into mm-hmm. one kind of picture that you can then take forward into your own interactions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. plenty of food for thought yeah. on that one. Yeah. Um, Do you, maybe I'd, I'd feel, I'd feel bad if I didn't mention we we've talked about culture, maybe community was a better word for we uh, both having a, a history in cross country, which is maybe we were talking before the episode just about like what circumstances or what situations are in place when you're like trying to foster or nurture a certain community or culture or a subculture, I should say. So what kind of um, elements are in place that kind of naturally bring that about? And if you were trying to build a community or a, a subculture what things do you want to bring to the table to, to facilitate that and make that happen? I think, I mean, when we were part of our cross country subculture, I think there was just so much commonality that it was hard to, like, it was hard to avoid. We were all running the same race. Um, we're all going through the same kind of workouts. We're all, you know, and then you add to that the commonality that we have being at a place like Martin Luther College, and it was very, it became a very close knit community very quickly, um, all, every year from my recollection. So mm-hmm. I mean, there's people from even my first year in cross country that still like maybe I would have a little catching up to do, but there would also be a still that shared commonality of like we went through that together. Mm-hmm that I don't know of many other experiences that I've gone through that I could have the same kind of relationship with. If I saw someone from like, you know, maybe like a musical or Mm -hmm. something from a long time ago, or it is, but there's, there's only a few situations that kind of bring that sort of, uh, togetherness. And then you think of all the rituals that grow up around it, you know, all the things that would, Make that a, an in-group versus an out-group. That is yeah. something that we just would not understand what we're doing. You know, yeah. just all kinds of rituals and traditions that mm-hmm. that are added on. And it's just a fascinating thing. You know, I always thought that when a freshman comes into the college from a school, maybe that they don't have any peers with them from that school, that to land in our cross-country program was just landing in instant community. And there's a a whole initiation process that goes on in terms of those rituals and traditions as we teach yeah. the our warm up routine was yeah. rather rigorous and, and what so, we sing after yeah. a race and yeah. how we kneel and pray before a race and all of that so yeah what we're saying is that culture has all these features but it can become a lens to look at all kinds of group experiences yeah and what and to ask the question how do we enhance and enrich this community um, how do we initiate people in yeah, that, so that's it's worship or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. cross country, whatever it might be. So what do you think it is that, is it rituals having, having a sort of shared, um, micro experiences, if you will, that, that kind of helps bring it together. I'm just trying to think of like what, like what actually ties it all, um, bundles it up. Well, I think it accumulates over time, you know, where first you have initiation to certain rituals and certain ways of conducting yourselves and then you go to the first meet and something crazy happens there like you know, there's a lightning and they they delayed the race and yeah. they got a lot of throwing football around anyways <laughs> you know and now and now you have that story it's like i was just there <laughs> now like, you have that story right yeah. and and someone outside of the group doesn't have that story and anytime that story is referred to you know in just a few words we can all remember how we were out there like fools you yeah, know, um, you had that great touchdown catch, though. I remember. Oh, do you remember that? I do. Oh, How could you. I forget? Thank you. I'm quite the athlete, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> but then the story that takes on a life of its own every time it comes up is another feature of mm. a culture. I and like yeah, that. I think it accumulates. I'm, I'm predisposed to like leaning towards like a narrative mm-hmm. paradigm or understanding of of how things. And I, li- I like that. How yeah. that kind of like the stories that we share 
are the thing that ties our communities together. Exactly. And so, and then, and then beneath that is we all have a certain orientation toward whatever it is that gathered us together. So there's an orientation toward the thing itself, which is distance running. And as you said, the pain, the pain, the struggle of that, we're all oriented toward that. Um, it's a sharing of human stuff, another version of the sharing of stuff. So we're, we're identifying deeply with each other, I think in a group like that. And, and is that Burke? Yeah, Ken Burke. You know, it's so f- far more beautiful what worship is, mm-hmm. the orientation toward Christ and the means of grace that we share. Uh, there's a love that we share. And then all these things that grow up around that, you know, all just the column rituals, but there's far more to it than that. Yeah. All the symbols, meanings, art, story, all yeah. of it, all of it comes together and we, we share it. And that's community. Yeah. Yeah. I was remembering... Cool. Um, I often think with culture, when I got to go to Russia and I was in a deaf club, have I told this story before on this broadcast? No, you, this is brand new material for me. I am on the edge of my seat. We're in a deaf club someplace in Siberia. As one does. Yes. (laughs) And there are pensioners. It's just, it's older people, Um, babushkas, you know, the Russian grandmothers and, and um, outnumbering the men by a certain proportion and... Um, the missionaries explain these people remember communism. They remember, they remember it very well. And it has much to do with, you know, just the look of them, the stooped shoulders of the men and, you know, just what they've all seen. And, and so you think how, as far as culture being this curtain, that can seem impenetrable. How different can a person's experience possibly be, you know, add on being deaf. So add that to the mix. You know, what do I know about being deaf in Russia? living through communism and then, and then being a pensioner. I just, you know, it's just, wow. It's like you removed all of the possible <laughs> places that I could connect with. But, exactly. Yeah. So are we the same? Or are we different? And, but the, whenever an American, um, someone like myself, when you visit our mission field, you're always given a chance to address people and it's often through translators and so on. And so, um, yeah, I vividly remember speaking speaking the gospel, speaking about grace. And it goes from me to the Russian translator to the deaf club translator, this really ancient woman with one big tooth in the front of her mouth. (laughs) And she signs it to the group of people and then they all respond just, you know, visually kind of nodding and excited. And then, then they sign something and it goes through the signer, through the Russian to the English and back. And you're just communicating like one it's like telephone. Exactly. Yeah. You wonder how much is <laughs> how maybe, much is lost. lost. Yeah. But the, I remember the message was at one point part of what part of what was said back to us was we were all atheists. They said hating each other. We were all atheists hating each other. And then they said the missionary came and told us about Jesus, and now we have peace. And then you see all these smiles and all the nodding of heads as you wait for the message to come back to you through the channels and through the curtain. And so Clifford Gertz would say that that moment of connection, that moment of community and koinonia, which is, you know, the Greek word for fellowship, having something deeply in common, that he would probably call that an illusion. But what we know is that the gospel has this remarkable power to penetrate culture, uh, you know, I always think of Jesus at the account of the Russian, or the Russian, the Roman centurion, I think he was Roman, not Russian, but uh, as Jesus celebrates the faith of that man, then his, his dream is, I see, he said, I see people coming from east and west and sitting down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so Russians at a, at a Jewish table, that's Jesus saying that the gospel transcends culture. And I often tell my students, if you think that's beautiful, you know, that the the sort of defamiliarizing of the gospel, when you see it in other faces, other tunes and melodies, other, other cultural trappings that surround the gospel, and it's like you never saw it before. I think that's, that would awaken the desire to travel the world with the message of Jesus, because that all by itself makes it worth it. Oh. On a similar vein, uh, about maybe a few months ago, we we did a Bible study on Acts, and so it was interesting to um, 
kind of see the relationship between like Jews and Gentiles and how that was kind of, I mean, there are some things that I didn't understand before, mm. before that, just how different that was culturally mm-hmm. to like accept a Gentile into like as someone that you share the same faith with was almost like, that has how, to be how do you, the biggest example yeah. of, of the gospel bringing people together who were conditioned and, and trained for sin. Peter has these visions where she's come down. Right, right, right. There's no, and maybe this is what, but it's like, no longer is it Jew versus Gentile. Right. It's you're, Here you're God's no people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the words I was yeah. thinking of. And that's so, what I mean about the Bible setting up its own way of transcending culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't end up in a postmodern soup at all. Yeah. Um, we have objective truth. Mm-hmm. And much the scripture says about how we are to be together. So. I like it. Culture. Yeah, I think that kind of wraps up our culture discussion. Do you have any dessert? I have one little piece of dessert. This is very. I actually thought of one too. Very, so, very, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll go Sweet. first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is just me thinking again about 1,300 downloads. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I, I can't even understand that. Even, I know it's not a very big number compared to I don't even know podcasts. that many people. So <laughs> I, know, I know it's not a big number. It's just a surprising number when we don't promote or didn't have any vision. Yeah. Really for you and I just sitting down and talking about stuff. That's what kind of all this is. I'm reading, um, I'm reading Andrew Peterson, who is a Christian artist, mm-hmm. has uh, some real cool songs out there. Is He Worthy yep. is one of them. Classic. And, yeah. And I love the Be Kind to Yourself mm-hmm. song and video. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Um, reading a book by him, and he has this concept of the resonator. So you'll like this, John, as an artist. The resonator is when you're doing art and you're writing or producing your videos and stuff that that there are certain people out there that understand it. There are certain people out there that get what you're trying to do and just uh, how valuable that is to to someone who creates. So it's a very small little bite-sized dessert, but I thought yeah. you probably like that concept. Re- what's the... The resonator. Resonator. Someone that understands resonator. what you're trying to do. Interesting. become is it like a, your ideal audience. Like a... Per, it sounds like almost like a personality trait, like a or like a way of being, like a resonator, like you're a, um, like like I'm a perfectionist or mm-hmm. I'm this, I'm a resonator. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Hmm. You find you find the kindred, yeah, soul among your audience, people you're producing things for. That, yeah. I think I it's see interesting that in- to like take that into the advertising space, which is oh, usually yeah. where I end up, but. I see it in my classes too. I yeah. Mean, not every student understands what I'm trying to do in a given yeah. class, but there's there's those that do and they yeah. really they really encourage you so profoundly to keep doing what you're doing because they yeah. understand it. I think humor is used a lot as a resonator where it's easy to get the attention. Hmm. I'm gonna mull on that for a little okay. bit. I have to chew on that. So yeah, pretty think thick chocolate for dessert get your sense of humor and those yeah. that don't. Yeah. So sure. Hmm. What is your dessert that you... So my dessert is I took a semester of Russian while I was at oh, Beloit College. Yeah. So I really wanted to study abroad there. Um, there isn't a study abroad program here. Otherwise I would have gone. Um, but one of my favorite idioms, in fact, if, if, you, if you're down for a whole roller coaster ride of laughter until you're like you your face hurts. Look up Russian idioms. There are so many that are so, and this is pertinent to culture too, uh, just so different. Um, the one that I, that I still say is uh, um, in Russian, it's Yakaktuchia. And it's been a while, so please, all the hate mail you have, like, well, I'm ready. Anyway, it means I'm a rain cloud or I'm like a rain cloud. And it's like a, a metaphor for like, I'm sad, I'm blue. <laughs> so I say that all the time. Oh, I love that. I was like, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm a rain cloud. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, that's like a student told me when you really want to say someone is a good friend, you say you are my liver friend. Or I'm your liver friend. I just love idioms like that. <laughs> so the liver is like the deepest innermost part of, yeah. your, of your inner self. So I tell Connie that all the time now. 
You're my liver You're friend. My liver friend, yeah. So, uh, thank you for that dessert. That was yeah, delectable. Yeah, I'll, there's a there's a few more, but I'll leave them to okay. the audience to to Google that on their own. So, okay. this is uh, um, the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yep. Bye.